Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to EM Guidewire's podcast brought to you by the residents and faculty of the Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Typically, we'd be coming to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio, but as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to smolder, we are cautiously in our respective homes, and hopefully you're able to stay safe as well. Today, we'll be continuing our conversations about approaches to common issues that arise in the emergency department, and nothing, unfortunately, is more common than trauma. Dr. Servin and Blackwell are going to address how they prepare for those critically ill and injured trauma patients and give us some of their pointers on how to calm the chaos. On a little editorial note, our pre-hospital services in Charlotte, North Carolina are internationally renowned and are phenomenal, and we are certainly privileged because of this. That being said, while some of what is mentioned in the coming conversation between Dr. Servin and Blackwell is specific to the Charlotte area, I do think that everyone will be able to glean some educational information out of this conversation and hopefully apply it to where you work. Also, while we're thinking with trauma, let's take a few moments to check out the CMC Imaging Mastery Project on the website of EM Guidewire to help increase all of our comfort with reviewing imaging obtained during the assessment of those traumatized patients. Lots of great learning available on the site. Don't miss out. Now, without further ado, let's take a listen to Dr. Servant and Blackwell on how they manage the potential chaos in the trauma room. Welcome back to EM Guidewire. I'm Victoria Serban, one of the third years. And I am again Joe Blackwell, another one of the third years here at CMC. All right, Joe, what are we going to be talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about trauma. It's the middle of the summer, and unfortunately, given the happenings in the world, we've seen a slight uptick in kind of our, our sick trauma patients. So I think it's important to talk about our first steps in managing various different kinds of trauma today. So at our institution, usually we are alerted to trauma by a medic call. If it's a sick trauma, we usually hear, can I have a physician to the radio? Cool. So let's have a physician to the radio. So Dr. Servin, you get call from medic. They say they have a 25-year-old gentleman. That's two two five-year-old gentleman. (laughs) Roger. Two five-year-old gentleman that is coming in after a gunshot wound. What are the things that you're going to be asking medic for so that you can kind of figure out and triage them and make sure you get all the steps you need? Yeah. So I'm definitely going to want to know where that gunshot wound is. Is it to the trunk? Is it to the head? Is it to an extremity? I'm going to need to know their vital signs. Here we always ask for highest heart rate, lowest blood pressure, lowest GCS. I think those are all really important to get right off the bat. Love it. And I think that's going to really kind of set up your mindset going into this. If you have a patient that was shot in the arm, you're going to treat that a little bit differently than a patient that was shot in the chest, right? And Um, if they are shot in extremity, my next question is, is there a tourniquet in place? Because if they've got an arterial bleed requiring a tourniquet, that's very different than if they're they're hemostatic with nothing on. Yep, for sure. So highest heart rate and lowest blood pressure. You mentioned that. That's something that we use here at our shop. So early signs of shock, right, are going to be the patients that are going to be tachycardic. That's one of the first signs that you see when you have decreased blood volume. And that's going to be the type of shock that we're going to worry about in these patients, so the hypovolemic. And if you're getting their blood pressure with that, you can calculate a quick shock index. Anything greater than one is going to be very concerning. Dr. Servin, can you tell me what a shock index is? 
Yeah. So it's a way to kind of quantify how severe a patient's shock is. So you're going to take their heart rate over their blood pressure. And if that number is greater than one, then they're in shock. Yeah. So if we have a patient that is tacky to 130 and hypotensive at 80, you're going to really start to worry and make sure that you have everything squared away. It can be more subtle than that too. Say they're tacky to 110 and hypotensive to systolic of 100. That's still an elevated shock index. Yep. And those patients are going to be really sick too. Even though the numbers might not be super impressive, their physiology is definitely going to be altered. And oftentimes in trauma patients, we're dealing with younger populations. And so they're probably going to be able to compensate for a little bit longer than say our sick MRs. Yep. Absolutely. So we've gotten our medic call. We've called out at our institution. We have three tiers, adult trauma code one being the most critically ill. So we've called out a trauma code one. Unfortunately, this gentleman, was uh, shot in the chest. He is tachycardic at 120 and his blood pressure is 90 systolic. The Um, next thing I'm going to want to know in this case is have they listened for breath sounds? And if they're missing, have they done, I think our medic um, doesn't usually do finger thoracostomies, but they can do a needle decompression. Absolutely. So these are all things that are going to kind of clue us in as to what's going on. So you're getting ready. You roll over to room one, which is our resuscitation bay. And and what are you going to have in the room ready to go? So this patient was shot in the chest. I'm going to be worried about a couple things. I'm definitely going to want to have my chest tube kit ready. I'm going to, depending on how sick they are or where EMS is describing their chest room, even have a thoracotomy kit available because penetrating wounds to the chest are an indication to do that if the patient does code on the way to the hospital or even in front of us. I'm also going to want to make sure I've got blood available and in the room and then have my team kind of together. Somebody's going to need to be assigned to different roles, including that chest tube that we talked about and getting quick IV access. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things really for all resuscitations we do, whether it be medical or trauma, there are going to be a lot of people in the room. It's going to be chaotic. So if you can, while it's the calm before the storm, if you can assign your roles and get everything squared away at the beginning, I feel like that's going to set you up for success. So you're going to have multiple nurses. You're going to have a nurse to get drugs. You're going to have a nurse to get access. If needed, you're going to have a nurse getting ready with the code cart and then assigning roles to the different physicians in the room. So can you kind of talk through what some of those roles would be for the various physicians? Yeah. So we need one person running it. It's nice to have one clear voice and for everyone to know who that is. Absolutely. And then one person in our shop doing the ultrasound. And then depending on how many procedures you think there are going to be and how many, again, we're an academic training institution, so we've got no shortage of residents. I'm probably going to assign one resident to each procedure. So I'm going to assign someone on each side of the chest to do either finger thoracostomies or chest tubes. I'm going to assign one person on each side to be working on a cordis if the patient needs it, which I think is really important. Sometimes we forget that you should be working on it bilaterally and whoever gets it first gets it because you don't want to waste time in these patients. Yep, absolutely. And so with our trauma ones, we get that gets us our trauma resident as well as our sticky residents here. Unfortunately, not everyone is as fortunate as us. So assigning roles, multiple roles to each person, I think can also be helpful. And kind and, of prioritizing procedures if you don't have six interns at your disposal. Ex- exactly. And so it's also helpful to have someone that can do your primary and secondary survey for you. 
<laughs> if you're standing at the foot of the bed, you're the one in charge. There's going to be a lot going on. You don't want to have to be kind of bogged down with doing an exam on these patients. And this is where ATLS really comes into play. There are certain people that don't think ATLS is as important, and, and that's a different discussion for a different day. But I, I do think it deserves its due here in this discussion because it's a great way to make sure that you're doing a head-to-toe exam and that you're identifying any life threats early. I think especially for learners, it's just a great way to make sure you're not missing anything. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going through our primary survey. So A, B, C, D, our airway, making sure that it's intact, breathing, make sure that the patient is initiating their own breaths, as well as listening to bilateral breath sounds and our circulation, so palpating a pulse. And this is one place where I see kind of early interns kind of get thrown off because they're often the ones at our institution doing the primary survey, Mm -hmm. and they will come across a problem like, oh, there's absent breast sounds on the left, and then move on to circulation. You should really be stopping anytime you find an abnormality on your primary survey and addressing that issue right there. Yep. I think one of the things that people often complain about with ATLS is that order A, B, C, and some people move C to the top. Yep. I think depending on your how comfortable you are with ATLS or how comfortable you are with trauma patients, A, B, C, or C, A, B, totally fine as long as they're all three getting covered and you're addressing each one as you find a problem. Yep. And, and it's real easy to address these in a quick fashion, right? So I think you, you said it very, very eloquently is it doesn't matter which way you're doing it as long as you're getting it done and you're doing it well. And, and they don't, they're not exclusive. If you run into an airway problem, it's going to take some time to set up for intubation. So you can move on and make sure that their circulation is adequate because you're definitely going to want to address that as you're preparing for intubation. Yep, for sure. So as the person running it, medic rolls in and they're giving you their report. I'll usually tell my my team beforehand kind of what my steps are going to be and what my thought process is. So if we have a penetrating wound to the chest that I'm worried may have absent or decreased breast sounds, I'm going to tell my ultrasound resident, while they're still on the medic stretcher, go ahead and throw the linear probe on their chest. See if there's a pneumothorax. That can kind of clue me in and get me thinking right off the bat of what my next step is going to be. Yeah, I'd say definitely when I'm worried about a pneumothorax, that's when I want the ultrasound right there, right away to make that diagnosis really quick. I'd say another area where I'm like, get the probe on right now is if I'm worried about any type of cardiac dysfunction or tamponade. Yep, Yep, absolutely. So kind of contrary to the typical fast exams of where you're doing your Morrison's pouch and your parasplenic, I think doing lung sliding and looking at your heart first in a really sick patient can really clue you in. A lot of times you can also get most of your primary survey done while the patient is still on the medic stretcher. And you mentioned when medic rolls in, I think it's really important that as medic's rolling in, you quiet the room, make sure that people at this point know that you're the one leading the room and everyone is quiet while medic is speaking. And then you're the loudest voice controlling the room from here on out. Yep. There should only be one person talking at a time, whether it be you, whether it be the person doing the primary and secondary survey, make sure that you tell them to be loud. And then closed loop communication is going to be huge in this. So when you're giving an order, get that person to repeat the order back to you so that you know it's been received. That's going to decrease confusion and it's going to make sure that everyone knows exactly what they're doing at all times. Yeah. One really important thing that our third year taught us when we were interns was to kind of continuously remind the room where you are, what you've done and what your next steps are. So anytime things started to get chaotic in a trauma, I asked for the room to settle down. I summarize what we've already done. I summarize what we need to do next. And that kind of keeps everyone focused and doesn't let the room get too chaotic and people start to panic too much. Yep, absolutely. There's nothing worse than someone getting frazzled and not talking through all of their stuff when they're running a trauma because that just leads to more miscommunication and ultimately worse outcomes. So let's say 
got our manual blood pressure. We've moved this patient over. He's on the monitor. We place a chest tube on the right side, and then the patient starts to get more hypotensive, and the room's getting kind of anxious. How would you manage him from there? Yeah, so we, we've kind of identified a life threat, right? If there's no lung sliding or something like that, we've identified and treated it with a chest tube, or at minimum, putting a finger in a chest. If they're still continuing to get hypotensive, I'm going to make sure that I have access. The most important thing in any trauma is going to be access because you can't do anything without it. Bilateral 16s are a great way to start. Our nurses here are fantastic, especially our trauma nurses at getting access. But sometimes in these patients that are hypotensive and volume down, that can be really hard to do. So I have a low threshold to direct someone to get a cordis. I, I started loving subclavians, especially in patients that already have a pneumothorax. You don't get the Blackwell two-for-one special of two procedures, one indication. So you have a pretty free reign to go ahead and, and try and get a subclavian cordis pretty quick, especially if you already have a, a chest tube in place. Mm-hmm. And kind of important to note in chest or abdominal trauma, usually we often go for ephemeral because there tend to be less people down at the legs and at the head of the bed, and it's just kind of more elbow room. But if you're worried that their aorta or any large vessels are injured above their groin, you're going to be pumping blood into an empty space. Yep. So subclavian is usually the preferred line in our institution. Yep. And, you know, like Dr. Servant said earlier, I'm going to have people coming at it from both sides. That way you're not wasting time trying to, to get access on a patient that is actively trying to die. Yeah. It might be hard to try and place bilateral subclavians as far as that elbow room goes. Other people do need to be doing things. <laughs> that is true. So making sure we have access. And then I'm going to start blood early, right? There's no really no role for fluids for crystalloid in a trauma resuscitation. And they've almost always gotten a liter or two during transport. Exactly. So I'm going to reach for blood, remembering that we're doing it in a balanced resuscitation. So for every unit of packed red blood cells, I'm giving a unit of FFP and a unit of platelets. So having that in the room early before your resuscitation even begins is huge. So making sure that you have that squared away. And it's misconception that just because you ask for an MTP or a massive transfusion protocol doesn't mean that that blood can't be used for other patients. I have a low threshold to call it and call one of our techs to go run and get it because just because you get it doesn't mean that it has to be used during that resuscitation. Yeah. And I'm sure a mass transfusion protocol means different things at different institutions. So it's really important early on in your intern year to figure out what it means at your shop. And ours, a mass transfusion protocol will get you six units of packed red blood cells, six units of FFP, and one packed of pooled platelets. So it's going to be platelets from several different donors, but we kind of count that there's enough platelets in that pooled pack to give you the one-to-one-to-one ratio that you're looking for in trauma patients. The other thing that kind of I'll think about in these patients is if you're giving an MTP is to give calcium to. A lot of these patients are going to be hypocalcemic because of the binders that are in, in the MTP to keep it safe and viable. So giving calcium to these patients is going to be huge and can help one with inotropy in your patients and make sure that you're not leading to worse outcomes. So we've kind of talked about our setup, our initial roles, and what we're going to do to get this patient resuscitated. And I think all of this is is great so far, but we need to really talk about the differences in the types of traumas. So I think talking about penetrating versus blunt trauma is big and the common types of, of each that we see. So, you know, penetrating injuries are some of the sickest patients that we'll see in a trauma scenario. Breaking them down between stab wounds and gunshot wounds is going to be key because there are differences in their kind of damage that they do. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd say stab wounds. It's good to get an idea of the size of the blade that they used because that can kind of give you a sense of deeper structures were injured. But in general, what you see is what you get. You can see the wound. You kind of know what structures are underlying that injury. And so you can kind of anticipate what their needs are going to be. Whereas ballistic wounds, the whole 
whole kind of tract that the bullet has followed is going to be injured. And so it's not uncommon to get a gunshot wound to the chest and then we get a KUB and the bullet's in their abdomen. And so you have to think about injuries that could have occurred at any point when that bullet's traveling down. Yeah, exactly. Once a a projectile enters the body cavity, there's really no telling where it's going to end up. So I think, number one, counting your holes is going to be huge. Always count your holes. Exactly. Always. Because if you have an uneven number of holes, that means you got to go searching for something, right? So you mentioned getting a KUB. Really, all of my trauma patients are going to get a chest x-ray. Make sure to look in their crevices. Yep. uh, Armpits, groins, under their testicles, between their butt cheeks. you got to look everywhere. Yep, exactly. Bullet wounds and and other penetrating injuries can really hide anywhere. And if you're not doing a thorough exam and looking at every nook and cranny, you can easily miss something and and lead to really bad outcomes. So we've counted our our bullet holes. We've made, we've done our thorough physical exam and and we have a gunshot wound to the belly or the chest. These patients are almost always going to need some sort of operation. So as much as we like to do things in the emergency department and fix problems in nine out of 10 sick trauma patients, we are not definitive management, right? They need to be in the care of a trauma surgeon that can do uh, further resuscitation in the OR. Yeah. Our goal should always be to stabilize the patient to get them out of that trauma bay as fast as possible, whether that means to the OR or to the CT scanner. Keeping them in our trauma bay is not helping them for the most part. Once they're stable, they got to roll. Yep, absolutely. Bad outcomes happen when patients spend too much time in the emergency department. So realizing the limitations of what you can do can actually save a patient's life. Yeah, I'd say the longer codes, if I start to feel like we've been in the room for a long time, then I know that something's not going right with this code. Yep, exactly. Now, we would not be EM Guidewire if we didn't talk about the FAST exam. Shout out to Dr. Tyel, VT, holding it down for us. So Dr. Sherman, what is, is, in your opinion, the, the role of the FAST exam in a trauma patient? So the FAST exam, I think we do it on almost every trauma patient. I've even done it on people who had a car accident three days ago and came in with some belly pain. (laughs) What we should really be using it for is to identify free fluid in the abdomen or in the chest in a patient that is hypotensive. And we kind of need to decide whether or not they're going to the scanner or whether or not they're going to the OR. Yep, absolutely. So if you have a patient that is hypotensive, you do your fast and you see a, a thin black stripe in Morrison's pouch, where are you going? OR. Exactly. You get a patient that is hypotensive, that has a negative fast, what, what's going to kind of be your thought process? Because those patients are a little bit, it's a little bit of a gray area, right? Mm-hmm. you got to resuscitate them first. So what are your kind of thoughts on where do we go next? So if they're responsive to the product that I'm giving them and they're stable enough, they can go to the CT scanner. All of our older attendings will let you know that you could do a DPL bedside to see if there's some blood in the belly. If they're hypotensive, the fast is negative, and they're not stable with the product that I'm giving them, then it's a little bit of a harder decision. I think it's up to the trauma surgeon to make that call, whether they're comfortable with them going to the scanner, probably with one of our portable code pack, or if they are going to prepare the OR and just go forward with, say, an XLAP. Yep, exactly. So I think it's important to realize that while a fast exam is incredibly useful in making this decision, it's not going to see all the free fluid in the abdomen, right? So making sure that especially maybe not so much with our penetrating trauma, with our blunt trauma, we're getting different x-rays to see where blood can collect and any potential injuries that may be, may be caused. So that's a, a great segue into what our next type of trauma is with blunt. So these are typically our MBCs, which we see far and away the most here in, in Charlotte, but also assaults are going to be other uh, classes classically blunt trauma. We've also had a string of elderly gentlemen falling off ladders recently. 
recently. It's been a pretty sad string. So any type of fall will also go under the blunt category. I've had several from construction sites, from people going over their stair railing. We get all types here. Yeah, drunken escapades. So Dodge Sherman, usually with blunt trauma, you worry more about the different areas in the body where blood can collect. So what are the what are the big areas that can cause a patient to get hypotensive that you need to look for? So the two most obvious are the chest and the belly, Mm -hmm. but also your femurs. And then your head will take a very little bit of blood to start to increase your intracranial pressures, which can also mess with your hemodynamics. Yep, absolutely. And then the last place is on the floor. So making sure that we have um, a good EMS report as to how much blood loss. Sometimes it can be a little bit exaggerated, but if uh, the paramedics usually are are very good at at telling us when there's a significant amount of blood loss at the scene. All right, Dr. Sherman. So we've gone through our initial call, what we want to know from the paramedics, our room prep, ATLS, we've set up our roles, and we've kind of talked about our, our penetrating and our blunt traumas, as well as their ultimate disposition, whether it be to the CT scanner or to the OR. It would not be a good trauma talk if we didn't talk about the, the elephant in the room in any trauma, and I think that's an ED thoracotomy. So there are a couple indications for an ED thoracotomy. I think the most agreed upon is a penetrating wound to the chest that loses pulses in front of you or within five minutes of arrival. Yep, absolutely. You know, ED thoracotomies, while they're they're exciting and it's kind of the bucket list thing for a lot of emergency physicians out there, it's a procedure that carries a lot of risk, not just for the patient, obviously, but also for the physicians in the room that are performing it. It's violent. It's It involves rib spreaders and broken bones and things like that. So making sure that you're taking exquisite care to be safe, not only for the patient's sake, but also for your sake is, is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. I'd say one other kind of more controversial indication is blunt trauma with signs of life that codes in front of you. Sometimes people will advocate to do an ED thoracotomy on those patients, knowing that their survival rate is pretty abysmal, even though they had signs of life. Yeah, exactly. I think there, there are different studies that quote different numbers, but for blunt traumatic arrests, more times than not, your outcome is not going to be good. I think the most recent literature says like 1% of patients will survive with a good neurologic outcome from a blunt traumatic arrest. So keeping all that in mind so that you're not doing uh, needless procedures on patients that are not going to have any sort of meaningful neurologic outcome, it's all going to factor into your thought process and your decision making. And one thing to consider is the family perspective, especially during COVID times, at least in our emergency department, we're not allowing a lot of family members to come in, even with our trauma patients. And so you could make the argument that you told family you did everything you could. You opened this patient's chest. Or you could say that maybe they don't understand why their loved one came in. And then all of a sudden the doctors in the, not even in the OR, are opening up their chest and messing with their heart. Yeah, exactly. So all these are are big things to, to keep in mind. We're fortunate here at CMC to have a great trauma service and a great trauma program. But I think it's important to keep in mind that not everyone has that, right? So if you're going to be doing an ED thoracotomy, you have to have a place to go. You know, if you're in a a, a single physician coverage place that doesn't have a surgeon. This patient obviously needs to go to the OR after you cut open their chest and, and start massaging their heart. So if you don't have that capability, then I don't think that we should be doing that procedure. Mm-hmm. On a lighter note, do you want to go over a couple more things that we would often have prepared in the room before EMS gets there. I, for one, usually call for a speed splint if I hear that there's any type of long bone trauma to the lower extremity. If I'm concerned that they've lost pulses at all, I have a Doppler out. Yep. If I'm worried about an unstable pelvic fracture, I like to have the pelvic binder laid out on the bed 
ready for the patient when we move them over. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think the pelvic binder is a, a huge thing to to have ready to go because as we said earlier, the pelvis has a lot of vasculature and it can easily bleed into your belly. So that's a quick way to kind of shut off any bleeding. And it's not the easiest thing to get on a patient when you're trying to maintain C-spine precautions and, and everything else, especially with a lot of the patients that we're seeing. It's not easy to get it, get it under them. Remembering that it doesn't go right at where your belt line is. It needs to go a little bit lower over those greater trochanters um, to make sure that you're pulling it tight. Not every place is going to have a splint to do that. So there are some other ways to make sure that you can tampon on any pelvic bleeding. So getting a sheet and making sure you tie it really tight around their around their hips. You can create your own windlass with IV poles and tie a knot, put a IV pole there, tie another knot on top, and that can be a way to twist it and kind of make a, a pseudo tourniquet. There's another way. a great way to do a tourniquet too, instead of using someone's belt. Yep. Get a, a stick and a t-shirt. Yep. Hopefully there aren't a lot of sticks in the ED. Well, if they're out <laughs> in the field, we get so many times where medics like, yeah, a bystander put, put their belt on as a tourniquet. I'm like, well, either they don't have an arterial bleed or they're bleeding out right now. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think those are all great, great things to have in the room ready to go, depending on your EMS story. Make sure that you know how to use the speed splint because there's no better way to look like a fool and instill zero confidence in anyone than to be fumbling around with the ankle straps that go with that. So make sure yeah. you know what you're doing when you... Leave the straps on that little foot model until the last second. <laughs> exactly. I like to line it up with the patient's foot. Yep, exactly. Don't forget to put your padding on. The patients will definitely not like it if you put that cardboard up in their groin. So Dr. Servant, I think we covered a lot today. Do you want to give a quick recap of everything so that we can make sure our listeners got everything? Yeah. So starting with the medic call, you're going to want to make sure that you get all of the appropriate information to triage this patient, making sure that you get what their injury is, where they're injured, and their most recent vital signs. We always go with highest heart rate, lowest blood pressure, lowest GCS. And once you've got that information, it allows you time to prep the room, pull any meds that you might need, call for blood if you need it, get any equipment out, and then you need to assign roles. So we're going to want to make sure that we know who our writer in the room is, who's going to be working on IV access, who's getting a manual blood pressure, who's hooking the patient to the monitor, all those sorts of things from a nursing perspective. And then if you have multiple physicians available, you want to assign someone to the ultrasound. If they've got an injury to the chest, let them know that they're priority number one at getting the probe on the chest to check for lung slide or a pericardial effusion. Make sure you get anyone who needs to do any procedures involved and that they know what they're doing. And then make sure that the whole room knows that you're the leader, that you're the one that everyone should be listening to. Yep, absolutely. And then knowing what you're dealing with, whether it be a penetrating or a blunt traumatic injury, can really help you kind of dictate the management. And then ultimately, an ED thoracotomy is a procedure that can be done in the direst of circumstances, but just make sure you're taking proper care to be safe and do what's best for your patient. I think that's a good introduction to trauma, and we'll probably leave you there for the day, unless you have anything to add, Dr. Blackwell. Nope, I think that sums it up. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems out. And I am again Joe Blackwell, another one of the third years here at CMC. Prefers to go by Joey. Okay. I'm so hungry, too. Stop making noises. <laughs> I think, number one, counting your holes is going to be huge. Always count your holes. Exactly. Always. Move along. i got to get a sandwich in me.